0: This is Maxine and the Planet's Unknown, a sci fi audiobook in podcast form, written by, performed by, and produced by Brad Lawrence. That's me, to quote Karina Longworth. Before we get started, one small note on the sound quality. I am not recording this in a studio, I am recording this in the tiny side room of my Brooklyn apartment during a pandemic. All around my apartment are the sounds of ambulance sirens because of the pandemic and children trying to get just a little bit of outdoor time on the concrete splotch that passes for a backyard in an apartment in Brooklyn. So I have done my absolute best to soundproof against this as much as I can, but Brooklyn pandemic, ambulances, children. For God's sake, think of the children, and do your best to enjoy what I think is a pretty good story, in spite of what may be some occasionally imperfect audio. Thank you. Maxine and the Planets Unknown, Chapters 2 and 3 Chapter 2 Sheriff Sumner Gray opened the door of his quarters, took a deep breath, and thought maybe he should close the door of his quarters. Why did getting up and going outside seem so hard today? Why did he desperately want to turn around, take off all of his clothes, and climb back into his bed and sleep, or pretend to sleep, or lie there and stare at the door, until at least tomorrow This was not like him. He was not a sleep-the-day-away kind of guy. He believed in getting up on the first alarm, no hitting the snooze, no rolling back over. You got up, you got ready for the day. Maxine thought this was ludicrous. Maxine believed that the morning alarm was a thing to be negotiated with on an ongoing basis. And when she finally did get up, it wasn't so much in deference to the alarm's demands as it was tabling the discussion for the following morning when the negotiations would pick up anew. She teased him that he must sleep in his clothes, on top of his sheets, so as not to wrinkle them. The clothes or the sheets. He smiled to think of that. He looked at the scrawled note next to the door, Studying was all it said. He had no idea what that meant, considering the school was on break until after settlement protocols were complete. But clearly, she had been up and out the door and God knows where, carried on the current of energy that every teenager is granted and the indefatigable curiosity that was Maxine's alone. He had not found a way to talk about the extraordinary ways his life had changed since Maxine had come to stay with him. Part of the barrier to any such conversation was that before Maxine's arrival, he had not had to think about his personal life from someone else's point of view, and there would have been no one to talk about it with, even if he had. This lack of self-analysis was in some part due to the fact that so many of his intimate relationships had been extremely short-lived. It was also in large part why So many of his intimate relationships had been extremely short-lived. This realization had not quite hit Sumner yet, but it was on its way. Before Maxine, he went about his life because it was his life. He got up every day on the first alarm, he showered quickly, ate breakfast standing up, and made his coffee in a spill-proof travel mug. Then, in less than a half an hour, after that first and only alarm had gone off, he put on his jacket and walked out his front door to do his first round of the morning. His jacket was the only part of his uniform that he wore every single day. This was a carefully calculated thing. For, as little reflection as his personal life received, the inverse was true of his professional life. As the sheriff, he needed to be able to walk among the citizens of the Contiki and have them both aware of his presence and comfortable with it. He needed to be unobtrusive, unthreatening, and yet readily identifiable in the case he was needed. He also needed a way to signal to people the levels of seriousness his presence might imply. If they always saw him in his full uniform, and they got comfortable with that, then when he showed up to ask them very serious questions about why their spouse had bruises, or why there was a credit discrepancy in their favor, and he looked like he always did, they might think lying to him was not so big a deal, not any bigger a deal than when they nodded to him in the morning. Keeping the full work uniform in reserve for such occasions had been effective. His other two uniforms, full dress and tactical, he had never even taken out of the closet. He'd never had to wear the tactical uniform because the Contiki had never been under siege from a military-scale hostile force, either externally or internally, And on the few occasions that he actually had to deal with them, he did not hold the ship brass in enough esteem to wear the full dress uniform to their functions. His predecessor had, and Sumner had seen firsthand the looks of contempt and amusement it had inspired in the military stuffed shirts from the bridge level. It was a uniform, and in their eyes anyone in a uniform was there to take orders. But it wasn't one of their uniforms, so there was no reason that those orders should be delivered with any kind of respect or regard. What he did wear when he met with the military types, and it was almost the only times he had actually taken it off its hook by the front door, was his sidearm. And he wore it in a way that made it clearly visible. This was not to imply overt physical threat. It was because it was something they understood. It was a symbol of raw power. And showing it, let them know that he had his own reserve of that. That made him someone to speak to frankly and economically. To them, power was a job, and if he had it, then he must have work to do, just as they did. So let's not waste anyone's time. Once he was out the front door, Sumner's routine had been pretty much the same for the past 17 years. He had become a sheriff at 24. He'd been young and unready, but his predecessor, Sheriff Abidway, had been old and working on a bad ticker. It had already been more artificial extension than original tissue when Sumner had become his deputy at the age of 19. There were of course other deputies but all of them had specializations within the department or secondary roles on the ship. And there had been somebody else in the queue for sheriff between Sumner and Abidway, Deputy Cole. But within Sumner's first year, Cole had taken a spill off a catwalk while trying to secure a maintenance gate with a broken latch. It was a part of the catwalk which is popular with a lot of the children on the ship and Cole was trying to get it secure before anyone took a fall and got hurt. Then, he took a fall and got hurt. He'd landed on the promenade, and it was a miracle not on a person. He could walk again, thanks to nanofiber shunts that ran down the length of his spine. He could walk and do all the medium-speed, low-impact things any person with a completely intact spine could do. He could not run, not safely, nor could he aim a gun, not safely. So he had retired at the age of 32 into a life as a historian specializing in Earth's extrasolar expansion and the Kontiki mission in particular. He now knew more than anyone about the ship, its people, and its journey. Then, three and a half years later, Abidway had died peacefully in his office. Dr. Sandoval had said that he hadn't come in for the routine maintenance on his cardio implants for years, in spite of her constant nagging. She seemed genuinely irritated with Abidway for dying unnecessarily. That was kind of how everyone started to feel about anyone who died within the last couple of decades of the journey to oxalus. There had been a sense of Really? You couldn't last just a little bit longer? It was irrational. People die when they die. But it was hard not to give in to it. And Bidway actually could have been more responsible for his ticker, and he likely could have lasted the extra 17 years at a minimum. And Sandoval thought it was great a bullshit that he hadn't made the effort. So, Sumner had become sheriff at the age of 24 and the first thing he had to do was make everyone think that he thought he knew what he was doing. He decided to do this literally one step at a time. Every day from day one he had gotten up, walked out the front door, and walked the Habitat Bay of the Kontiki, the town promenade as it was called, and tried to help out anyone who needed anything that he might come across. Whether it fell directly under the purview of law enforcement or public safety or peacekeeping or none of those things at all. It was just get out there and become someone the citizens of the Contiki felt they could rely on for whatever came up. It had worked, and he had never stopped doing it. He had even come to enjoy it, looked forward to it until today. Today, he just wanted to go back to bed. Chapter three There was people stuff around. There were earth movers and mounds of oxalus soil that they had already started to rip up to make way for surface habitation. The process had started within the first couple of days of landing. She even vaguely remembered passing a coffee station someone had put up for whoever had been operating those earth movers. And now, with some distance, Maxine scanned the piles of dirt and the dormant machines and the scattered bits of tools and materials and realized that there was no one, not a soul on the port side. Maxine shook her head. Not portside. It's not a ship anymore. It's a city. Cities don't have port and starboard. What do cities have? Cities have borders? That didn't seem right. Maxine had never been in a naturally grown city like the ones on Earth, cities that had evolved over centuries, but she was pretty sure cities' borders weren't defined by exterior walls with doors and access panels and egress bays. But then, maybe the ones on Mars might be? Why was she thinking about cities on faraway planets? Why was she standing here, staring back the way she had come, at the place she had come from, thinking about these far-off places she was never going to go? What was wrong with her? She was an adventurer, an explorer, a 15-year-old Magellan, or Armstrong, or Masood, There was a whole planet waiting to be explored, and she was the one who was going to do it. She would explore and be the first to have mapped the planet Oxalus. From the ground, that is. Since it had already been mapped from space, by probes and long-range scans, and more recently, satellites deployed upon approach, if she was being realistic... This place had been mapped within an inch of its life. That's how it got its name. The first long-range habitation probe had come across an enormous mountain that dominated the northern continent, and so they had named the whole planet for the mountain god of ancient Greek mythology. They had named the mountain itself Geological Feature Designation 8567.00. If you were wondering, at what point a scientist's capacity for poetic flourish fell apart, well, there you are. The emigres, upon seeing the scans and that ludicrously dry designation, had taken to calling the mountain BGDGF-85, or Big Goddamn Geological Feature-85, and sometimes just Big Goddamn. Maybe... Maxine would go there someday. Someday. Not today, Uh, since it was a solid 800 kilometers away from the landing site. That seemed a little overambitious. No, today she had seen from the scans and survey photos that there should be a small river, big stream, within walking distance of the ridge. And where there is running water, this is where you find life. Besides plants free-ranging life with nervous systems and eyes of one kind or another. That had held true for every planet Earth had colonized, which wasn't a big enough sample to call it a universal law by any stretch of the imagination, but the consistency of it to this point was still something that gave people shivers of wonder whenever a new planet with an atmosphere that could support liquid water was found. So maybe... The rest of the town was too antisocial to get out and meet the locals, but not Maxine. Also, those scans had pretty much ruled out large predators on this side of the mountain range that climaxed at Big God So, relatively safe. Here we go, here we go. Just a few more steps, and here was the thing, though. She had never, not ever, in her life not seen the Kantiki. Sure, up until a couple of weeks ago, she'd only ever seen it from the inside, so that was a leap she'd already made. But if she went past the ridgeline and down a couple of meters, she would no longer be able to see the thing she had always seen. She understood that it would simply no longer be visible, it wouldn't disappear, She got how physics worked. She was nearly a full-grown person who had a fully functioning understanding of object permanence. And she knew that the city ship would still be there settling its way towards just plain old citydom and that she could turn right around and come back up the hill and it would still be there and she wouldn't die alone on a strange planet. Would she? Uh, anyone? What weirded her out, truly, was the notion of things being underground, living things. Ecosystems that supported life always had some way of circulating the various gases and chemicals that kept that life going into all the parts of that ecosystem that needed those gases and chemicals. Another common theme, though not as common as the water thing, for a large sample of the complexity-sustaining planets they had surveyed was that aerating the soil meant creepy things in the soil doing the aerating. It was more than likely that there was an infinite variety of slimy, wriggling things squirming around directly beneath her feet right now. Not to mention the scaly and dry, or the hairy and clawed, or the gelatinous and cloying. This was not something you had to think about when you grew up on a spaceship. The only things below you on a spaceship uh, were conduits and access ports, occasionally Finley from maintenance, or someone Finley adjacent. You could say a lot of things about Finley, but he did not wriggle. She shook it off. There was no point standing here, obsessing, about unseen creepy crawlies. She stepped up to the crest of the ridge, and there, just beyond the verge, was a steep slope full of impassable brambles and thorns and knots of underbrush, so dense it was impossible to see the ground beneath. She started looking around for a way into it. A path of some kind. Then something moved. Maxine very nearly jumped out of her skin. She turned and looked right, the direction of the movement shifting her weight in the opposite direction and clenching her fists in preparation to do hand-to-hand combat with a bug. A, a bug. A, a beautiful bug. Uh, it was crawling up a length of twisted vine. The vine itself was part of a system of interlaced spoked conduits that seemed to form sort of a horizontal tornado of fibrous cords that ran beneath sudden bursts and clumps of orange and green leaves that looked, from a safe distance, velvety in texture. It was dense, and below the readily visible surface, inscrutably dark on a sunny day. The bug was as big as Maxine's closed fist, and about two and a half feet feet off the ground. It most closely resembled the beetles that she had seen on school trips to the hydroponic farms on top deck. Its carapace was round and smooth and a shimmering orange color that was too close to some of the velvety leaves to be a coincidence. Camouflage to its environment, she thought. But its carapace had folds of yellow running around the edges with little hints of cerulean. As it moved, its legs seemed to emerge and retract from beneath its shell. It seemed like, if it needed to, it could pull them in and all it would give the outside world would be an impenetrable little tangerine. When the legs emerged, she could see that they ended in small, segmented, grasping digits. They would sort of reach out and stretch before jerkily landing on the vine's surface. It was a kind of clumsy searching quality that was almost adorable for a bug. What Maxine didn't see was any kind of spines or claws or fangs or even a little beetle-sized gun. That wasn't a lot of data to base a decision on, but it seemed safe enough to get a slightly closer look. She bent down, keeping her hands close to her folded knees, and leaned toward the little guy. She moved as slowly and non-threateningly as she could. Then the beetle's carapace suddenly came apart and flared up like two sets of blast shields, and Maxine almost fell on her ass, trying to back up. From behind the raised shell, the yellow and blue folds fanned out, expanding to form an arc of thin membrane that seemed to quintuple the insect's original size. It was beautiful like an elaborate fan that had been hand-painted by the most talented watercolorist who had ever lived. Fully opened up, the yellow and blue seemed to both blend and intermingle, while also giving way to large fields that were just one color or the other. It was like a visual illusion. It seemed to have depth and layers, but that was obviously impossible as the material was tissue thin. Just as Maxine was deciding this was not the bug's way of announcing that it was about to spit acid in her face, it suddenly shivered. The membrane went tight like ship sails and a breeze so light that Maxine could only barely feel it lifted the beetle off of the vine. It came briefly closer to Maxine and then curved up and arced around to drift high and away. Its flight extended out from the ridge and then around to land the beetle in a tree far off and down to Maxine's left. When it landed, it shook out its sail, which lost its tautness and went first languid, and then collapsed in a heap of furrows as some unseen mechanism gathered it back up under the insect's shell. Then Maxine noticed more movement in the tree. And as her eyes adjusted to the new information, she slowly realized that the branches were covered in the beetles. They were everywhere, moving around, chewing on leaves, seeking one another out, stumbling over each other. They came in an array of color patterns that all seemed distinct, but also all still seemed like some variation on the orange and blue and gold of the first one she'd encountered. Sizes ranged from the fist side that she'd observed up close to twice that to a quarter of it. And there were a lot of them. It was like a holiday on the Contiki Promenade. Everyone in town, it seemed was out. Well, Maxine thought, it is important to meet the neighbors. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.